Hello everyone, I'm your host Patrick, and welcome back to another episode of Not Adding Up. This week, I have another returning co-host. My sister, Laurel, is back again. It, I don't know. That sounds so weird to hear you say my name. I know. I can, it's, like, hard for me to pronounce. I know. It's And it's people always ask me, do you like Laurel or Laurel? And I'm like, I don't care. Laurel is easier, I guess, for me to pronounce. I always just say Laurel. I know. And it's like, but everybody has, everybody in my life has their own way. But I'm excited to be back. I'm super excited because you were so invested. Jaw yeah. dropped at this. So This case is crazy. Can't wait. Before I get into the case, I wanted to touch on a little business. First things first, I wanted to give a proper shout out for this case suggestion. A new follower on my TikTok account commented it. So thank you so much, LaCole, for suggesting one of the cases I'm about to cover. You have been so sweet on my TikTok, and it makes me so happy to hear feedback from strangers that enjoy my content. I enjoy the research, and spreading the word is essential with these cases. I had absolutely no idea that looking into one missing persons case from 1980 would send me down the rabbit hole that it did, connecting it to crimes spanning from the late 70s to 2001. Also, this case is so wild that it is going to be a two-parter. That's right, they're making a comeback. Don't worry, I'm not going to do four-part series like with the Oakland County Child Killer. Sadly, there is very little on most of the cases I'm going to discuss. One last thing, I want to give the first of many clarifications. Over the next two episodes, we will discuss the stories of multiple women. Some of the women have direct and confirmed connections with the perpetrator that we will be discussing, and some do not. Therefore, it is important to note that not everything I cover is confirmed to be connected, and I will be sure to clarify when something is speculation or conspiracy, but as you know, there is plenty of room for that here on my show. And you just stopped moving, I know. I'm like, I I'm like, is your jacket? Yeah, but it's my shirt. This week's case is A Rabbit Hole in New Hampshire, part Ooh. one. It's a beautiful state. Very, uh... A lot of forests. Very rural. Very rural. That's what I was <laughs> thinking, yes. The first case I'm going to cover is the disappearance of Lauren Ron. And her name is spelled L-A-U-R-E-E-N. But I'm guessing it's Lauren? Lorene? Lauren, yeah. Lorene? Lorene. It's like E-E. Hmm. What do you, what would you think? Lorene? Lorene. Her mother's name is Judith. Ah. Judith and Lorene. Lauren? I don't know. I've literally never seen Lauren spread with two E's. Does she have a Facebook? Can you go to her pronunciation? <laughs> this is from the 80s. Oh. <laughs> no way. Yeah, and but... she was 14. Oh. So. Okay. But, uh, Lorene. I'm going to go with Lorene, because I've never seen Lauren spread with two E's, but mm -hmm. hopefully I'm not messing it up. Hope it does. Lorene Ron. As mentioned, this episode was mentioned was requested by LaCole. Why don't you look up a YouTube video about this and see how they pronounce her name? Okay, upon looking up a YouTube video, it is Lorene. <laughs> Didn't mean to doubt you, I just 
when well, he was going go with Lauren at first. Yeah, I was going to go with Lauren at first. So. But born on April 3rd, 1966, 14-year-old Lauren Ron lived with her mother, Judith, in Manchester, New Hampshire. I should have checked the last I'm going to guess it's Ron. It's R-A-H-N. Ron. I don't know. Ran. I'm going to guess Let's go with Ron. That's yeah. fine. Her parents were divorced when she was a baby, and when she was four, she would move with her mother to Miami. However, the pair would return six years later. Laureen was a student at Parkside Junior High School, where she was known to be a good student. She maintained a good relationship with her mother and enjoyed extracurriculars, such as singing and dancing. Despite all of this, it is still known that she did have some struggles. She was known to spend a lot of time alone on the streets, where she began to experiment with drugs specifically booze and weed. One of the biggest pet peeves of mine is when articles say something like they began to experiment with drugs and alcohol. Like alcohol isn't the most damaging drug. I know, yes, yes. Empirically speaking. Yes. Lorene was described by her aunt as an angel who hung out with the wrong people for a while. When did she, how old was she when she moved back? So she, it was six years. 10, I guess. Okay. So that's like just young as young, young, young. In the early morning hours of April 27th, 1980, Lorene would vanish from her home, a third floor apartment located in Murmurac Street in Manchester. Lorene was on spring break this week and the night of her disappearance, her mother Judith was attending her boyfriend's tennis match. Her mom's boyfriend. Yeah, he was a professional tennis player. Interesting. It was out of town. Typically, Lorraine would go with her mother to these matches. However, this time she asked to stay home and Judith agreed. That day, a few family members would stop by the apartment to check on her. It is known that she would make a trip to the local convenience store. Her friends say that she saw her stocking, that they saw her stocking wine coolers at the store, store, potentially in exchange for some alcohol. That evening, she would invite two of her friends over. One was a boy and one was a girl. The three would drink a six-pack of beer and a bottle of wine. So the timeline taking place 40 years ago is a little gray, to say the least. However, it seems like the time was around 12.30 a.m. when Laureen and her friends heard some voices coming from the hallway. They assumed this to be Laureen's mother returning home, and her friend, her male friend, would slip out the back door. He remembers Laureen locking the door behind him. However, it appears this was not Judith. So, her, she had friends, I'm sorry. It appears this was not Judith returning. Go ahead. She had friends over, so her friend... Well, I'm just going to let you continue. They were not the only tenants in the building to hear these voices. I wonder how these apartments were. I wonder if these were like... Okay, something about these apartments that's very interesting to me is that it was on the third floor and that they have a back door. To a porch. But it doesn't... He left from it. And it seems like so did she later that night. So maybe it's like a back door to another hallway. Interesting, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, very. At 1.15 a.m., 
Judith would arrive at her apartment with her boyfriend and something was instantly unsettling. All of the lights in the hallways had the light bulbs unscrewed from them, leaving the hallways on all three floors dark. I'm sure they're like pitch black. Depending on how these hallways are, is this also like... Terrifying. Yeah. Terrifying. Like, oof. That's... Mm-mm. So the voices and then that. All right. All right. We're just getting started. The door to her apartment was unlocked. Something no parent wants to find when they return home and the child has been alone. However, when they checked Laureen's room, they saw a figure in her bed and assumed it to be her. Some articles online make it seem like it was the very next morning when this was discovered, but a Department of Justice source contradicts this, and I'm going to go with that. Mm-hmm. Not long after this, not long after they checked on Laureen, Judith's boyfriend noticed that the back door was open, which I always hate when they say doors are open, but since they said the front door was unlocked, mm-hmm. I'm assuming this one was like ajar, not just mm-hmm. unlocked. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I already talked about the fact that, like, back door, third floor apartment, question yeah. mark. And it didn't, like, you'd assume an article to be, like, two. Yeah, years. like, you're right, like, a back door on a third floor, like, I'm not even, I've been in, like, a lot of different setups, but, like, how would that have a back door to another hallway? So it's obviously no open balconies. This is just, like, a literal, like, I always think of them as, like, ho- more of, like, hotels, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, not, you know, the setup. Of- and we're used to, like, apartments in small areas versus, you know what I mean, so. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. Then it might be, like, a small staircase versus, like, the actual hallways. It's just kind of like a fire exit. Yeah. That makes sense. Wow, look at me go. <laughs> After they find the door open, they go to wake her up and ask her why the door was open. And they realize that Laureen was not in the bed, but it was the friend of hers. The female friend. This mm. friend says that she left to sleep on the couch earlier that night. However, however, she later says that she can remember very little due to intoxication. How many friends? Was it just that's what I was trying just to Just two. Just her and... Just her, female friend, and a male friend. Three, well, two friends, one. Laureen and two friends. Okay, that's what, yeah. I have to... Where was the male friend? He left whenever they heard the voices. Okay. At like 12.30. Okay. Sorry, I missed that. I know I didn't At the back door. He's coming out the back door, yes. And she, he heard Laureen lock it. Judith and her boyfriend would then search the neighborhood, and around 3.45 a.m., they spotted a police officer and reported her missing. Well, let me guess. They can't do a missing persons. Oh, she's a child, so... She was initially believed to be a runaway, despite all of the sketchy shit with the apartment. However, as days turned into weeks, turned into months, turned into years, turned into decades, they had to accept foul play is a very likely factor. The only potential lead that came was from a bus driver who believed he saw a girl matching her description the day she disappeared and he had dropped her off in Boston. However, the photograph he was originally shown was older, and when police found a more recent one, the driver was unsure that it was her. Which I feel like normally Interesting. You yeah, you normally don't have such genuine yeah. misconceptions. <laughs> also, I feel like sometimes you feel compelled. Like, you want, you know, you want so badly to be like, I think I saw somebody like that. And then you don't want to give anybody that false hope if you're, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. If you didn't. So if you thought the lights and 
The voices were creepy. This is way before security cameras, I would assume. Yeah, it's the 80s. There's nothing that's mentioned. Yeah, I don't know when those became a thing. Especially in apartments like those hallways, you would think maybe. Oh my gosh, that's so crazy. In October of 1980, Judith discovered that she had been charged for three calls placed in California. She had no friends or relatives living in California, so this was very suspicious. With the help of the Santa Monica police... What do you mean she was charged her bank account? See, I don't know. I don't know how phones used to work. That was something else that confused me. I don't know how she would have been charged, but somebody had to know her phone something or yeah i guess it was her bank account because they were pay phones but that also was another like generational gap that we're not going to fully understand um but with the help of santa monica police judith judith discovered where the calls were made from two of the calls were placed from motel pay phones near santa Ana, and one was made to a teen sexual assistance hotline you heard that right what? Apparently, it's made from a teen sexual, to, made to one. They call. That's what they called. Apparently, this was a hotline. Yeah, yeah. For teens to call when they had questions about sex, which I guess if there's an actual pediatric doctor talking to these teens, taking these calls and explaining to them in a medical way, that would be one thing. But of course, this ends up not looking a whole lot like that. Detectives would speak with a physician that ran the hotline, who denied knowing anything of the call. However, five years later, in 1985, his memory was jogged a little bit when he was contacted by a new investigator. What? Five years later? Maybe statute of limitations. Yeah, I'm like, but why even bother at that point? Like, why even? Well. Just keep on, keep on, like, you're... Now he claims he helped numerous young women and runaways. They would occasionally visit him and his wife at their home, and he admits that some of the girls might have been from New Hampshire. He also gives the name of a friend of his wife's, Annie Sprinkle, who worked in the fashion industry with his wife. Upon looking into Sprinkle, authorities were able to connect her to the child porn industry. They would scan several of her films looking for Lorene to no avail. I'm like, whoever had that job. Oh, awful. Because, like, the 80s, I'm sure the technology for scanning videos yeah. was limited. I bet they just had to watch them. Yeah, that's what I was about to say. Is I bet scanning was, like, two people watching them. Or, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Two. It's just awful. I, I figured something, it would be, like, something terrible. In 1986, an investigator would visit the two motels the calls came from. One of the establishments is potentially connected to another child porn producer named Dr. Z. Dr. Z was unable to be linked to the teen hotline. And like it, mm-hmm. the, I said potentially, so it's like not very concrete. Mm-hmm. Starting in 1981, Judith would, receive, would begin receiving phone calls, typically around 3.45 a.m. Eerily the same time she reported her daughter missing on April 27, 1980. The caller would never speak, and the calls would continue for several years, increasing in frequency around Christmas. 
which I didn't really put a connection together until I wrote my script this morning, but oh my god. Remember the fact that they increase in frequency around Christmas, okay? Okay. And the fact that 3.45 a.m., like, both is when she... Creepy. Stalker, is what I think. Lorraine's aunt also reports... This, you will be... This is fucking... Ugh. I have, I have chills. Whenever I first read this, I literally had chills so hard that my eyes started watering. Uh-huh. Lorene's aunt also reported getting several phone calls. A young girl would call her and ask to speak to her son. And when her son picked up, the call would always go silent. Ah, I hate that so much. I hate it because it's the little girl and then nothing. Yeah, and then she heard the voice, and, like, I wonder if it was familiar to her. I feel like he, she was just being forced to call. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree, but I wonder if it was actually her. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I wonder if they recognized the voice, or... Yeah. I think that would have been, like, Something a little girl who sounded like Lorraine. Yeah, you're right. Yep. One last upsetting occurrence around her disappearance has to do with the young boy that she was with the night of her disappearance. He was never considered a suspect in her disappearance, and his identity was protected because he was a, because he was a minor. However, it was reported that in 1985, he completed suicide. Hmm. I have absolutely no way of knowing if the two are connected in any way, but this is an extremely upsetting mm-hmm. fact regardless. Very sad. Two lives. Two lives. Judith would eventually move back to Florida and remarry. She believes it was Lorraine placing the phone calls in October of 1980. In her heart, that's what she believes. Mm-hmm. The ones that she was charged for? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I agree, I think that as well. Police have followed up on thousands of tips, followed leads as far as California and Canada. However, this case still remains unsolved. This case is so upsetting and kind of reminds me of the Amy Lynn Bradley, as well as the Oakland County child killer. Just the fact that there's pretty solid evidence that something very sinister happened to her is very chilling. And clearly, child porn was a very booming industry in the 80s. Yeah, with the literal epidemic. A literal epidemic. Well, it's crazy because it's not like it's not still there. It's not like we still don't have this problem, especially with Snapchat and, you know, all these social medias. Yeah, TikTok. It is crazy. All these child predators online that can mask themselves now. You know what I mean? And, like, prey on small children for that industry. Laureen is a Caucasian female, brown hair, blue eyes. She has a prominent scar on her upper leg resulting from a fall into broken glass. And she has a light brown birthmark under each eye. If you have any information about Laureen's disappearance, please contact the Manchester Police Department at 603-668-8711. So that is all we have for Laureen's case. Thank you so much. Yeah. For coming back on the show. Always. If you want to get in touch with me, you can do so by Psych. Psych. This episode is far, far. Okay. Because from... I was really confused. I'm like, 
thought this was a this mind is a, blowing. Yeah, yeah, mind blowing. I'm like, that was really unfortunate, but this episode is far from over. In 2018, something of interest to the investigation was discovered. Laureen lived just a few miles away from a serial killer. A serial killer who is known to have kidnapped children and take them to California. Whoa, 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 whoa. A serial killer who has likely murdered multiple children. Why did he wonder why he took him to California? That is right. Buckle the hell up, everybody. We have officially entered the rabbit hole. We're going down. And boy, oh boy, are we late for a very important date. On June 8th, 1980, just a few months following Lorraine's disappearance, another young woman disappears from Manchester. This was an actual young woman, not a little girl. Denise Ann Denault. I'm going to say Denault. D-A-N-E-A-U-L-T. Denault. What are you saying? Denault. A-U-L-T. I think it's a D-A-N-E-A-U-O-T. I don't know. I have to see it. Denault. I have a really hard time, like... I'm going to... Yeah. Denise Ann Denault, 25, was divorced with two sons. There is very little on her story, so bear with me. Very little. There's nothing. There's nothing. On June 8th, Denise would leave a private social club in downtown Manchester around 1.30 a.m. with the intentions of attending a party that same night. She was never seen again. That's all. Mm-hmm. There are some connections to be made, however, between her and Lorraine's case. The fact that they live just two blocks away from each other. And some point out that they look somewhat similar despite the 10-year age difference. And this isn't really a connection. How, how many, like, time frame apart were the two? June 8th was Denise. April 27th was oh, Lorraine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And number three, a third connection is that Denise lived just a few doors down from that serial killer I mentioned, who is living in the area under the name Bob Evans. How original, if I ever come up with a fake identity, I'm using first name Apple, last name Bees. Catch me out here. Okay. <laughs> it was Robert, but like, he went by Oh, home. now I really, all I can think of is that meme. Bob, Bob, Robert D. Mom! If you haven't seen the video of like the Iowa. Wife, it's the Iowa wife calling competition. Husband calling competition. Oh, yeah, yeah. You need to find it and watch it because it's great. It's hilarious. In 2017 and 2018, there were searches conducted behind public housing units in Manchester, which authorities said were the result of accumulated information. This was in the search for Denise Denault. We will get to what this new information was in a little while. I just want to give a description of Denise as well. Denise Ann Denault is a white female with brown blonde hair and green eyes. If you have any information about Denise Denault's case, please contact the Manchester Police at 603-668-8711. So what was this new information and where exactly were they searching? They were searching behind Denise Buden's apartment. Different Denise, everyone. Yeah, I'm like Denise. 
Buden, B-E-A-U-D-I-N, Denise Buden. Let's hear her story. Denise was 23 and was dating none other than Bob Evans in 1981. On November 26, 1981, Denise and Bob would have dinner with her family to celebrate Thanksgiving. At the time, Denise had an infant daughter, and it seems like this daughter is from a former relationship and not Bob's. After a few days of not being able to contact her following them having the Thanksgiving dinner, they would visit the home on December 1st. Nobody was home. Their original thoughts were that she left with Bob as they were having some financial struggles. But as time would go on and developments would emerge, it became clear that this is not the case. Apparently not. So this new information that led to these searches in the Denise Denault case is that in 2017, Bob Evans was identified as Terrence Rasumin, Rasmussen, I don't, this one I don't care about, Rasmussen. Rasmussen. Terrence Rasmussen, Mussen, probably, that sounds more American, I guess. Terrence Rasmussen. And Terrence is a real living piece of shit. <laughs> Terrence is also the serial killer I have been alluding to. Bob Evans. So let's talk about him. Born in Denver in 1943. However, he would grow up in Arizona. And he made it to sophomore year of high school before dropping out and joining the Navy. He was in the Navy for about six years before being discharged. Which I don't know if you can get discharged. Like, is that just like the way for being... Like, is that not necessarily always bad? You can get honorable or dishonorable. Yeah. Didn't clarify dishonorable discharge. He was a good electrician. That's one thing that was known about him. He would marry in 1969 and have four children. However, by 1975, his wife had left him following him being arrested for aggravated assault. Hmm. It is not clear if this was a domestic incident. However, this woman and her children are quite literally the ones that got away. Around the time that his first wife left him, he would break things off with his family. And his last wife, his first wife, last saw him in Arizona around 1975 or 1976. Never saw him again. Yeah, he was like with another woman too, like just kind of like, it seems like he was just trying to cause her more trauma. Yeah. But by the late 1970s, he would resurface in, can you guess what state? Uh, New Hampshire. I said Arizona. Yeah. Yeah. I I said wrong. I said Boston, but no, New Hampshire. New Hampshire. By 1978, he had moved on and was dating Marlise, M-A-R-L-Y-S-E, Marlise. That seems pretty straightforward for me. Yeah. Marlise Elizabeth Honeychurch. Oh, that's a cute name. I don't know why. No, Honeychurch. Honeychurch. Marlise was last seen on Thanksgiving dinner when the couple would visit their family, her family. And can I just say, does that sound familiar? Yeah. Marlise's family was not very happy with the apparent age gap between her and her new boyfriend, Bob Evans. And after this argument, she would leave the home with Bob and her two daughters, six-year-old Marie and one-year-old Sarah. Oh, no, I didn't. Following this, the three were never seen alive again. What was the age gap? I think she was in her early 20s. 
Sierra, I think she was like 24, I want to say, 25. Oh, we'll get into that. I'm jumping ahead. And, well, I'm about to jump ahead, too. In 1985, seven years following their disappearance, a young boy and his friends stumbled upon a barrel near Bear Brook, New Hampshire, while playing a game of hide-and-seek. Oh, no. They lifted the top of the barrel and were hit with a putrid smell. Then they pushed it over and jumped on their four-wheelers to drive away, not knowing the contents of the barrel. Their bodies. Shortly after this, a hunter also stumbled upon the barrel, except he had a worse feeling and called the police. Trigger warning. Inside the barrel, police found the remains of a woman and a little girl, which could not be identified. My gosh, it was seven, what, seven years later? A grave was made for them reading, Here Lies the Mortal Remains, known only to God of a woman aged 23 to 33, and a girl aged 8 to eight to 10. Their slain bodies were found on November 10th, 1985, in Bear Brook State Park. May their souls find peace oh. in God's loving care. That's sweet that they... So put a great, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Put a great out there. Fifteen years later, in 2000, about a hundred yards away from the first barrel. Oh my gosh! Another barrel was found. How did they miss? How did they not find it? For fifteen years, who went back up there? Were they like looking at the grave and then found this barrel? I don't think the grave is near the. Um, I'm sure the grave wasn't near the. I don't know where the grave was, but it doesn't have to be. Yeah, it's just... Ever found, yeah. But another barrel was found containing the remains of two more children. The four bodies remained with no IDs for over 30 years. However, well, I guess not really from 2000, but if you consider it mm -hmm. from when they disappeared. However, with the help of DNA advancements, in June of 2019, they were able to identify three of the four remains as Marlise and her two daughters. Well, at least they have that closure. It's just still like... Ugh. The third body was of another young girl mm. who Terry is known to be the biological father of. Oh. Maybe they don't know anything about that girl. How many kids does he have? The wife took four children, so those four were not the girl that was yeah. found with him. Authorities believe that Terry was responsible for these four homicides. However, they have been unable to officially link him. Considering he died in 2010, he would never face the repercussions for this crime. It just blows my mind that people do with that sh stuff that they do and they get a fucking away with They live their whole life and they got away with it. And they know it and they get that satisfaction. Also, I just feel bad for her, like, I mean, I feel bad for her family regardless, but, like, the fact that your last interaction was, like, a unpleasant family dinner. And, like, if the bodies were older so that they were alive for a couple more years, or, like, is that just, like... They don't, they, yeah, they had to give an estimation of when Okay, they I'm, like, I also wondered if, yeah, that's what I figured. I think it was between, like, eight, 1978 and 1981 is what they guessed. But... I can't imagine that smell either. Holy sheep shit compressed you know i'm sure oh it seems very 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 likely that he committed these four murders 
and then went on to live a normal life after. What happened after they, like, after they went missing? Did he, like, remarry or anything? Did he just go to the next? Between 1984 and 1986, Terry resurfaced once again, this time in California, using the name Curtis Kimball. I guess your question after that, yeah, he would get, he got with Denise. Okay, okay. And with this, because this was all leading up to Denise. Sorry. I was not. Yeah, this was leading up to him getting back in New Hampshire and then meeting Marlies. Murdering her, murdering her children, murdering his child. And meeting Denise. Resurfacing about five years after Denise disappears in California using the name Curtis Kimball. During this time, he had a five-year-old girl named Lisa, who he said was his daughter. While he always said that her mother was dead, the accounts on how would shift from time to time. Oh my gosh. This, I, as I'm sitting here thinking, it made me think of a case, uh... Oh, we'll talk about it later, but a similar case of a guy, like, kidnapping his kid, and it wasn't really his kid. <laughs> for years. <laughs> a woman would babysit for Lisa and a six-month-year-old girl from 1984 to 1985, who verified this story. And he said that they said... He said he was raising the children alone. Trigger warning. Investigators believe that Terry likely killed the infant as it has never been identified following these reports. In the summer of 1985, he would abandon Lisa with a married couple and she was later placed into foster care. In 1986, there were warrants put out for Terry. However, the warrants were for Gordon Curtis Jensen. Not Bob Evans, not fucking Terrence. Terry, what was his, what was his name? Terrence. Terrence is his real name, but he used another name in California. Curtis Kimball, not Curtis, no. Now, who is he? Oh, wait, okay, Curtis. Maybe that's his middle name. That makes sense. Okay, Gordon Curtis. I can't keep up with this. I'm like really thinking this is from, this is like starting to sound a little bit. This was in New Hampshire, like, well, not all of it. I mean, that was in, maybe it is. I swear this one was in Michigan, though. Was it on Netflix? I think so. I think I know what you're talking about. It's not this case. Okay. I'm like, definitely it was a documentary. This is not. There is no documentary on this. Okay. I mean, maybe, okay, maybe on Terry, but not on the Lorraine and stuff. He would evade the police until 1988, where he was arrested for driving a stolen car as Gerald Mockerman. <laughs> Gerald Mockerman. Fingerprints ID'd him as Gordon Jensen, and he was arrested for abandonment and molestation. Lisa being the victim in both. The molestation charges were later dropped as Lisa's adoptive parents did not want her to testify, did not want her to have to testify in court. He was sentenced to three years in prison, but was paroled after serving one in 1990. He did one year in prison for molesting his daughter. His daughter. For the next 12 years, investigators would have little knowledge as to his whereabouts. Can you guess what happens that does give us some knowledge to, about his whereabouts? Another relationship. In December. Another family or just a girlfriend?
In December of 1999, Terry was living as yet another person, Larry Banner, and dating Yinsun Jun. Yinsun Jun. A 45-year-old chemist working for a biotech company. Unlike, so a genius <laughs> with this POS. Unlike Denise and Marlise, we do have a little more info on Yinsun. She was described as not only being a genius, but having an artistic side. One of her favorite hobbies was making pottery. When she introduced her friend, her family, to Larry, they said that she seemed head over heels for him. They moved in together not long after and started to date. Oh, Wait, they moved in not long after starting to date. Yes. And by 20, 2001, the two had entered a non-binding marriage. I don't really know what would make it non-legally binding. Non. I didn't know you could do that. I don't know what it is. A client of mine is trying to do that. She always tells me, I want a pastor. She's more her, but she's like, I want a pastor to marry me with no legal paperwork to turn it in. <laughs> so maybe that's what it was. Yunsun's family became a little concerned when they would hear from her less and less. They would go over to check on her in person, but she was never there, and Larry always had a story ready. However, eventually enough was enough, and a friend of hers would contact the police, and they would search the home that they lived in. Police would find an enormous pile of cat litter in the crawl space. Huh. Upon investigating the pile, they found Yunsun, who had been murdered by blunt force trauma, dismembered and discarded. It just makes me so sick that this man... Wait, wait, wait. So this was 2001 and they found this. So what happened to him? It didn't take long for authorities to find CCTV of Terry purchasing 10 bags of cat litter <laughs> around the time of her disappearance. He was arrested and charged with murder under the name Robert Evans. <laughs> so Bob Evans would plead guilty to murder, the murder of Yunsun and sentenced to 15 years in prison. He died in 2010 of lung cancer. Shame he didn't get to serve out the sentence because it seems like he would have gotten some additional charges tagged on. So he did get a, he did have to go to jail. He died in jail. Yeah, great. That's all I was worried about. Good. Well, I don't mean I just wanted him to have to be in jail for. Also, full circle moment in 2003, authorities were beginning to try to identify who Lisa really was. After entering her DNA into an online system in attempts to connect her with her family, they finally got a hit 13 years later when it linked her to a cousin of none other than Denise Uden. What? Lisa was able to confirm that she was the daughter of Denise Uden, who disappeared with her in 1981. Her real name was Dawn. What? Lisa's real name was Dawn. Mm -hmm. Isn't that crazy? In 2016, they went missing in 1981. Yeah. Granted, she was given up in like 85, I think it was, but she didn't know all that time. Yeah, I think that there is something out on this. I'm like, this is sounding like oddly familiar. So just a recap of everything that we have covered. 
November of 1978, Marlise and her two daughters disappear. April of 1980, Laureen disappears. June of 1980, Denise Anne Denault disappears. November 1981, Denise Buden disappears as well as her infant daughter, Dawn. 1985, Lisa, aka Dawn, is abandoned. Marlise and her daughter are discovered in as Jane Doe's and Terry assumably kills the infant that was living with him. 1989, Terry is arrested for abandonment. 1990, Terry is paroled. 1999, Terry begins dating Yunsun. 2000, Marlise's daughter and Terry's daughter's bodies are discovered. 2001, Terry murders Yunsun. 2010, Terry dies as Bob slash Larry. 2016, Lisa's true identity was discovered. 2017, Bob slash Larry slash Gordon slash whoever the else fuck he was, was finally discovered to be Terry Rasmussen, whatever the fuck his last name is. Seven years after he died, they, they didn't know who he was for seven years. I just don't know how. I don't know how in 2000 and whenever he went in, like, they weren't able to, like, fingerprint him at that point and be like, oh, you're really this person. Like, But they, when they fingerprinted him, it brought him back to one of his identities. Yeah, but, like, I don't know how all these fingerprints, how did it not lead it to Terry whoever? How is that not his fingerprint? How is it all these other people's fingerprint, you know? So this was when it was discovered that Denise Daynault, Lorene Ron, lived near Terry. Yeah, so, so that's what caused I, it. Well, I wonder, I'm like, I wonder if one of the bodies was Lorene or something like that in the, I'm like, wrong, wrong area, right? Wrong time, too. She was 14. And she would have been. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, okay. It was not, it was not her. It was biologically his daughter. His, okay, yeah. okay. Um, I wasn't sure. In 2017 and 18, those new searches were conducted. And in 2019, Marlise and her daughters were identified. So, did you get all that, like... Did I lie when I said this no, that was a episode whole, was a rabbit hole? Yeah, a whole rabbit hole. It branches off so many different times. And you said this is a two-parter? I didn't even get to look into all the girls that Laureen is connected to, potentially. So I think that... Like, I haven't, be- I haven't began researching the other girls. My thoughts are that one theory is that Terry is responsible for Laureen. And then maybe another person in the area of New Hampshire was responsible for girls missing. Because I think it was like uh, 83, 84, 85, some of the other girls. Mm-hmm. But some connections. Let's, let's talk. So since we started with Lorene, who lived a few blocks away from Denise, who was a few doors down from Terry, this leads us to wonder if he had anything to do with both of their disappearances. However, something I noted when researching Terry is that he typically murdered women who he was in relationships with. They were all dating or married to him, the three that we know, the mm-hmm. three that I just, mm-hmm. just talked about. Well, actually, Denise, we, ha- we don't know if he murdered her, but that's pretty assumed now mm-hmm. that his daughter, her daughter, was found with mm-hmm. him. However, he is suspected to have killed at least four children. Something that stuck out to me was Thanksgiving seemingly being an important date. Two out of three women... And Christmas. Oh, no, no. No, no, and Christmas. Two out of three women were last seen with their families then, 
and one was in December, calls would start picking up around when? Christmas time. Yeah. So they would freak, they would. So the holiday season can be used to connect Lorraine's case with Marlise Denise Denaults and no, Denise Buden and Ian Soon's case by using the holiday season. Because two of them were last yeah. seen on Thanksgiving and one I was, was gonna say seen. one was Christmas too. Right? Not Christmas, but it, there is less to connect Denise Denault to Terry other than the physical location and looks. However, this does not put her out put it out of the picture. He went over thirty years on this earth without ever being charged for a quadruple homicide. So attributing two more murders to him doesn't seem like that much of a stretch. No, not at all. Especially with all the other things adding up. Two. But like I said, it seems like he had an M.O. for women he was in a relationship with. Yeah, but like his daughters and her daughter. I mean, like, I guess you would have to if his daughters, if her daughter saw you do something to her. But he also killed the two daughters and his own daughter. And I mean, I know they were younger than Laureen and uh, Denise. But I don't know. I just. Yes, most of them were girls. He was in relationships with her. Things attached to them, but it wouldn't be a far stretch. Due to the use of so many aliases, Terry has been dubbed the Chameleon Killer. Rightfully fucking so. This was yeah, for sure. such a good con man we didn't even know who he was until almost a decade following his death. I want to look him up. Chameleon Killer. I just like... Always, everyone, I'm doing this, I always try to look up these people. And I didn't look up anybody. While this case, while this seems to be the end of the road, as I said, there is other connections to be made with Lorene's disappearance. These oh are potential gosh. links. So, like I said, potential links. But I'm going to talk about those next week. I'm not adding up. I have to say this episode was one of the craziest, if not the craziest one I've covered. There is also a mini-series out on the Chameleon Killer if anybody is interested. I'm pretty sure that I've seen it. I can't say that for sure. If you want more info on his crazy self. Because I wasn't even looking into him. I was looking into Lorraine. I know. That's what I am like. If yeah. you just want to hear any more of like the whatever. But yeah, this was, this was a crazy one. I... It just blows my mind that he just went so long without going to jail or having any He went to jail for, like, some petty shit over the years, but nothing. No, I mean, yeah, but, I mean, he never got caught. Mm-hmm. Never, you know. Never got caught. But thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, my pleasure, always. Hopefully we'll be able to do it so you can do next week's uh, part two. Yeah. We'll see. But... If it's going to be, it's gonna be, be pretty again. different. Huh? So if not, I'm sure I'll be back again. Yes, yes. If you want to let me know what you think about this episode, get in touch with me on Instagram at podcastnau, or you can do so on TikTok like LaCole did and suggest a case. And as you can see, I do take case suggestions pretty seriously and will look into them if I can find enough. So definitely get in touch with me. You can also find me on Facebook by looking up Not Adding Up. I really don't do much there anymore. It's mainly Instagram and TikTok. 
But I think that is about all for this week. Keep your eyes peeled for a Solved with a Grain of Salt episode. That might be in the works. But thank you everyone for tuning in to another episode of Not Adding Up. I hope you are having a great morning, afternoon, or evening, whenever it is you are listening to this. I hope you tune in again next Saturday for another case that just does not add up. Thank you.